Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Seven Investing Podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. You can learn more about our Seven Investing membership, where we pick our top seven stock market ideas each and every month at seveninvesting.com slash subscribe and get started today for just one single dollar. My name is Simon Erickson. I'm the founder and CEO of Seven Investing. I'm really excited today because we're going to be looking at the technology world's most innovative trends and who else could we possibly talk to about those developing trends then Muji. Muji is one of the most innovative investors out there. He's got his Hyper Growth newsletter. That's hypergrowth with three H's.com. If you want to follow along with a lot of his coverage, he also has a newsletter subscription. Uh, Muji, I always enjoy these conversations with you. Thanks for being a part of the Seven Investing Podcast today. Thank you. Yes, I think this makes podcast number three. Always yes. a pleasure to talk to you. It, it does. And we always find a way to go in about 100 different directions. We're going to do the exact same thing here today, which makes it interesting. All right. Speed we're round. We're going to talk about cybersecurity. We're going to talk about GPT. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of different companies. Uh, we're going to talk about questions that were posed to our Twitter account. Uh, but to at least frame this somewhat, Muji, let's chat first about cloud computing. Because I know in your, in your newsletter, you've been chatting quite a bit about the Amazon reInvent conference, where they kind of roll out a whole bunch of different product features. As we were chatting about right before this show, it seems like Amazon always has its own hundred different directions that it's going in. But uh, what are a couple of things that you've been following with AWS and their cloud presence lately that you think that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, you really nailed it there. They have so many different kind of point solutions that they're building for some particular purpose that some... Sometimes from the outside observer standpoint, it looks like there's very little rhyme or reason for some of these uh, product lines to, to, to spin out to. And, and Amazon even has products that compete with each other. Like I'd say uh, Athena and Redshift are both building query engines around themselves that are starting to compete with each other, much to the confusion of, of uh, their own customers, one being kind of data lake query oriented in Athena and the other being data warehouse oriented. But Amazon is definitely, you know, last year's focus at reInvent was really around serverless. They were adopting the serverless mantle somewhat incorrectly, much to Twitter's, uh, much to the, to the commenters on Twitter's dismay is that they were basically spinning out serverless versions of a lot of the infrastructural analytical platforms where they create a managed cluster for you, whether it be EMR for big data analysis, Redshift for data warehouse, MSK for managed Kafka clusters. They started spinning out serverless versions of all those things. And most of the comments around that is that, hey, wait a sec, you invented the term serverless when you created AWS Lambda serverless functions, which are pay-as-you-go, spin-up, spin-down services that completely turn off when they're not in use. These new serverless categories that they spun up at last year's reInvent all have idle fees. And so they are basically uh, auto-scaling, but not truly serverless. And so you know a lot of the commentary last year from cloud computing observers <clears throat> was that AWS seemed a little confused. However, that's really starting to approach when you, 
when you look at a service like Redshift, which is their data warehouse, that is finally starting to approach where Snowflake has always been, which is separation of storage and compute. Redshift already had added that. Uh, they had specific instances that separate storage and compute. And now they are starting to add serverless to their Redshift, again, with base idle fees. So not truly serverless, but starting to move towards where Snowflake is going. The other thing they added at last year's was a data marketplace capability was expanded into Redshift. And so with this year's, they kind of continued that same trend. They had one last service that, that turned serverless, which is their open search, uh, which is their fork of Elasticsearch. So this is a, a competitor to Elastic Cloud went serverless again with idle fees, $700 of idle fees, as Twitter was pointing out to me, uh, per month to just sit with an empty server. <clears throat> so not truly serverless, but auto-scaling in that it can handle higher loads, higher capacity when needed. So it can scale up and down autom automatically, which is something that um, a lot of these other cloud platforms can already do. So you've got, so I've been watching the engines of Snowflake versus Redshift, of Confluent versus MSK, of Elastic versus OpenSearch. These are kind of the co competition that Amazon has been building up in its infrastructural platform. Obviously, MongoDB is in there for a, a long time as well with DocumentDB and DynamoDB at Amazon. And so it's been interesting watching that dynamic. They're moving, they're, they're clearly watching what the competing platforms are doing and starting to approach what Snowflake has already built in separation of storage compute, in serverless turnkey solutions, in uh, data sharing, now data marketplace. And at the same time, I, I'm fascinated by how Amazon is promoting those same companies through its ISV Accelerate joint co-sell partner program, where it is working with those same ISVs in order to sell all the ancillary services. If you're not going to pick Redshift, oh, you're interested in Snowflake? Well, guess what? We'll work with Snowflake to co-sell their service so that we can sell you to use AWS Lambda. You can use private link for private inter-networking to your Snowflake instance. Those sorts of ancillary services get bundled. And so Amazon really is wins both ways. They can sell you the raw compute if you can navigate through to figure out what exactly it is you need, how to not have your budget explode when you adopt these things. Or if you're going to go with the turnkey ISVs, they'll co-sell it with those ISVs as well and, and promote their platforms. So kind of a win-win for Amazon either way. Frenemies. Instead of BFFs, they're frenemies with a lot of these companies, right? Big time. We can chat more about that in just a minute, but let's stay at the 10,000 foot level before we drill down into that. You know, it seems like uh, this is infinitely complex. Cloud computing certainly is a huge trend that's out there. Uh, and it seems like also the big three, when you're talking about Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, who all have their own cloud infrastructure platforms, uh, they want to be a lot of things to a lot of different customers, but ultimately it's the customer that's going to say, this is what I need. This is how sophisticated I am. What, what do you have for me here? Uh, but, but that said though, Muji, do, do you, do you broadly um, 
generalize the, the cloud platforms? Is there something that Amazon, as you see as an independent observer of this, can you differentiate between AWS and Microsoft Azure and Google Cloud Platform? Is there certain things that they are trying to be or differentiate themselves from one another? Oh, absolutely. Amazon carved this path, obviously, with AWS. And as I mentioned before, really did invent the term serverless on-demand compute. Now they're trying to abuse that definition. Yeah. Their own definition. <laughs> but it's... Um, Absolutely, all of them provide and are starting to focus upon data and analytics, including machine learning on top of that, security, and DevOps. You know, they've all got infrastructural, kind of the same core infrastructural uh, platforms in terms of the raw compute you can buy, the raw storage in their object stores, the private networking that you can do within them to kind of create your own cloud space for your internal applications to, to run within. And so they're all fairly commoditized, I'd say, or have the same generalized platforms. Where Amazon really shines these days is in its custom silicon. It is has that advantage and multi-year advantage it, through an acquisition it made to create its Graviton line. It's also got Nitro. It's got its new Tranium chips for uh, machine learning. It's got a both a, a separate chip for machine learning training versus inference. And so it's really starting to carve a unique path there. Azure is absolutely paying attention and has hired that role, but they're years behind. And so that's where... AWS is is really putting the pedal to the metal in its advantage. Um, despite the criticisms I opened up with, which is that you've got all these product teams on the software side that are creating all these infrastructural products that somewhat compete with themselves. One product might eliminate you using some other product on their platform. So I, I fail to see sometimes a kind of a harmonious um inner working between them all. But that said, it's, its advantages with silicon are, are massive and it keeps iterating upon them with Graviton 2, Graviton 3. And I'm going a bit off script on this, but since you mentioned custom silicon and machine learning, I would love to hear your thoughts on Alexa, um, who is listening in as I, as I say her name in the other room, but the, the focus that Amazon has had on, on the inferencia chips you know, on, on the custom silicon to answer machine learning inference in terms of the queries that we're asking in our living room. This seemed like such a big deal a couple of years ago when Amazon had 10,000 engineers and who knows how many resources on that. But I don't know if I speak for everyone, but I still feel like I'm using it for fairly limited questions. Uh, wh where do you see Alexa and kind of kind of the home speaker or, or the home uh, machine learning inference model that Amazon kind of pioneered with this? Where, where are they going with this? Is this still a huge priority like it was a few years ago? I don't know anymore. Um, and let, let's do a little test here. Alexa, play Born to be Wild at top volume. <laughs> Darn it. She can't, she can't ah. hear us. Uh, I was, I was going to, I don't know, drive by, drive by Alexa you there for a second. I, I hear it in the other room right now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, 
that was one where I, I'm a long, I had held Apple stock for a long time and have been a long time observer of Apple. That was an interesting dynamic to see Amazon Alexa versus Apple Siri, uh, both of which got acquired and folded into their organization. And that was one where Am Apple seemed to really fumble the ball and Amazon got a huge lead into the living room. But I that has been so underutilized um, and and has been such a disappointing technology all around in terms of that um, living room assistant that 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 these are. Apple, oddly enough, had just released its HomePod uh, second iteration after completely um, discontinuing the first iteration. And so, you know, Apple doesn't quite seem to know what it wants to do in the living room. I think Amazon got a good foothold, but yeah, beyond shopping lists and, you know, buy this thing on Amazon, it hasn't really proved that interesting. This is where, you know, the conversation can start veering into the um, generative AI and conversational AIs that are starting to emerge that are text-based, where you can generate, you know, images from a prompt or and now full text. Um, it'll be interesting to see how these all merge from here. But I, I'm I'm pretty disappointed by the state of things in the living room at the moment, and and think that that's ripe for disruption from here. And and this is where Chat GPT or um, GPT three or four could make inroads because of the natural language processing within them. That's the perfect segue to uh, another chat topic we wanted to chat about here, which is not coincidentally chat, right? Chat GPT, we, we've certainly seen Microsoft now taking a huge investment, another huge investment at OpenAI. Um, Chatbots, you know, that are conversational has been kind of the holy grail for a lot of this for a long time. It's always been the question of, you know, how are you wanting to train the data and the algorithms to respond? Microsoft tried this years ago and had certainly some problems when it released Tay out into the social media world. Uh, Jan LeCun is one of kind of, the uh, main researchers in this field, you know, he's at Facebook right now. He recently called GPT not particularly innovative and nothing revolutionary. He's trying to look at the bigger world models of how we should train a, a, a general AI as opposed to something that's just doing statistics and kind of all of the algorithms based on matrix math. Do you have any thoughts about this and just in, in how to train the models and the infrastructure behind the scenes, Muji? I mean, I'm I'm certainly fascinated by it all. I I, I don't have any um, I don't have the depth of research as as the person you just quoted. Certainly, it's uh, what I think is exciting is that it's it, it's easy to see how particular areas can get disrupted by the wave after wave after wave of these AI tools that that are coming out now. You see something like stable diffusion come out massively disruptive to the illustration field where you can just use a prompt and it can go through the what it's already processed in the internet in terms of imagery to create something new for you and that's starting to be like there's a new startup that has um prompt driven uh artificial humans narrating videos for you and so boy an illustration game development, writing. It's easy to see how these tools can be disruptive into those fields. With ChatGPT, you know, there's a whole, so certainly there's all the ethical discussions. It's scraping the web, not necessarily applying the licensing and copyright of the imagery that it's scraping to build up its model. 
So there's a there's a, a legal battle to be to be fought there, but it's pretty exciting to see how um, you know are these going to replace uh, illustrators? Are these going to replace writers? Not necessarily. I personally am more excited from an investment standpoint in what they're doing in the code world uh, in terms of uh, assistive programming where it can go out and find examples in open source solutions to the problems that you have and can help you get, you know, 80 plus percent of the code in place in order to, to solve some problem. I feel like uh, we as a society are going to move from, you know, oh, this AI is just going to do it for me to being more handheld. It's going to assist me to improve my human driven output. Like, is it going to replace me as a writer? Probably not. But is it going to make me a better writer? I, I think it could. Is it going to make me a better programmer? I think it could. And so that's what I'm excited about personally as a technologist. Investment wise, it's really hard to know where any of these are going to have um, an impact and drive profits. So I, you know, from the investment side, I'm always the cautious one. I want to see it actually create a product and, and drive revenue. But you see it firsthand right now with uh, like Microsoft already has GitHub Copilot, which is that assistive programming. Um, and so you know, these are starting to emerge now as products. Let's, and, and as an investor, I want to see where they go from here. Mm -hmm. Let's chat about that next because Microsoft has embraced open source in the past several years. That might not have been what Microsoft would have done in, in decades past, but we did see that they went on, they, they paid seven and a half billion dollars back in 2018 for GitHub, right? Open source, you know, a way that uh, developers can share code. And like you said, suggestions for how to write more effective code. We now have another publicly traded player in this space called GitLab. And uh, Muji, you know, I, I know that you don't cover this one as closely, but I still would love to hear your thoughts on this company. GitLab went public last year at a $16.5 billion valuation. Uh, now, we know that, uh, I'm sorry, this was 2021. I keep saying last year as though it was last year. We're now in 2023. It went public in October 2021, year and a half ago, but still at a, at a valuation that was twice what Microsoft paid for GitHub. Um, do you have thoughts about, about GitLab versus GitHub? We know they're not completely direct competitors, but any thoughts about those two solutions and how they're being used? Oh, I mean, they are, they are absolutely direct competitors. It's, uh, the, the overlap is tremendous. Now, certainly GitLab maybe has a broader view of the overarching, what's called the value stream delivery platform, which is, we could be a, a tool for the enterprise to manage all of its separate disparate development efforts in one platform. Um, you know, GitHub, GitHub from Microsoft is certainly moving stronger into, um, well, let's, let's start with the 10,000 foot view. GitHub, fantastic purchase by Microsoft, has become the de facto for open source software tracking. So it's a place where you can have collaboration between all of these different programmers. There's issue tracking. Um, you know, the, the branch methodologies within the underlying source code repository where you can merge all of these different development efforts into one place and, and have scheduled releases out of it. 
GitHub really won the battle with open source. GitLab is winning the battle with enterprise solutions because you could deploy it on-premise and then they started a cloud service to have the managed instances in the cloud. And you know, why would you pay someone to manage what is essentially free is that you're freeing up your IT resources. And so, you know, you can, we always talk about enterprise customers, which are customers that spend more than a hundred thousand a year. That's one employee. You can shave one employee from not managing the infrastructure. You it's pays for itself. And so uh, I, I, I think GitLab does have a, a great model going after the enterprise and overall platform vision that they have. I find them a very open company. You can actually go look at their entire roadmap of where their platform stands today and where they think it can go. And so I've been pretty fascinated by them. I haven't specifically covered them in depth and I don't own them, but uh, I, I, I think they have a lot of potential. I think that brings up an interesting question too, that investors are aware of certainly is the tech layoffs, right? We're seeing now that Meta Platforms is cutting heads. We saw Amazon cutting heads. We've seen basically every every large Silicon Valley-based tech company is, is cutting employees' full-time equivalents. And you brought up a good point that a lot of these solutions, you know, you're you're becoming more efficient. You know, if you're hiring somebody else, you used to have somebody as an FTE, full-time employee, a full-time equivalent uh, doing that work, you could now hire that out, especially as something that's open source, it's very efficient. Um, but for software companies, which are a lot of the companies that you and I tend to follow, there used to be this, you know, per seat model, the subscription model based on how many people did you have using um, the, the, the subscription of the platform that you had. We've seen, uh, including a lot of the companies we just mentioned earlier in the call, whether it's Snowflake, whether it's Confluent, whether it's uh, others out the Splunk, you know, whoever it is, it kind of this usage based pricing, it doesn't matter how many people or how many seats you have, it's how often or how much usage are you driving out of the platform? Is yeah. this kind of the new the new model that, that we're going to see for everything that's built in the cloud? I, it, it's It's been pretty fascinating to watch the explosion of growth through 2020, 2021. Now the, the kind of recessionary uh, economic impacts of 2022, seeing... Uh, massive layoffs now to start 2023. It's been interesting to compare consumption-based growth, kind of subscription tier growth, and usage-based growth. Absolutely, those three different areas um, are going to have you know different headwinds and tailwinds at different times. And I think we are absolutely approaching some headwinds for usage-based usage-based growth. It's funny, we were just talking about GitLab, for instance. One of my hesitancies with developer tools in particular is that they are per seat, which means per developer. They're generally don't, they're not cross-applicable across the entire enterprise. I'm more interested in platforms that have scale in that they don't necessarily limit themselves to one audience. And so one of my hesitancies with DevOps tools is that it's per developer and there's only so many developers within an organization. Now, are those the ones necessarily getting laid off? Probably not. So, you know, maybe that's not quite facing the, the headwinds as operational tools 
security tools where you're, you know, something like CrowdStrike, for instance, you're buying per device, which is per laptop, which generally means per user. Uh, and so that we'll, we'll have to see what, you know, kind of headwinds are some of these uh, usage-based platforms are going to hit from here. Yeah. And it hits even outside of, you know, we're talking in terms of um, IT tools or cybersecurity. I mean, even outside of that, we've seen Netflix now even embracing an ad-supported tier, right? So power users, yeah. you know, if you're watching one show a month and I'm watching 10 shows every day, even though we're paying the same amount for the base subscription plan, Netflix will be making more an ad-supported uh, revenue from a user that's a power user. It certainly is something that's catching on. Yeah, true. Uh, outside of that, let, let's um, let's change gears a little bit to something we mentioned earlier, which is about the go-to-market approach. Uh, with all of the changes to the cloud and the usage-based usage -based models and everything else, uh, we've also kind of seen a lot of companies pivoting in how they're approaching their own customers. Um, it seems like there have been companies that have been going after the enterprise, uh, steak dinner, you know, get as high level of an executive into the meeting as you possibly can, and then have that permeate through the rest of the organization, uh, versus one that might be working with a smaller team of developers and let that catch on organically to build a larger following with more seats or more people uh, embracing the solution. We've seen kind of two two, two um, examples of this. Okta was typically kind of a top down, right? Okta was going after very large accounts, direct sales force, uh, then, you know, through all zero. And there were, there were kind of acquisitions that they've made. They've tried to get into uh, more of the developer teams. And then the opposite is true too, right? We've seen Twilio that kind of started as a solution that was embedded into apps, things like Uber and things like this, and then try to grow now into larger enterprise accounts. Uh, we can take this any direction you'd like to, Muji, but maybe my, my question for you is, does this work? Can you change your go-to-market strategy effectively out there? Yeah, it's the examples you gave. I'd give another one, Cloudflare, that was uh, typically bottom-up and has switched or is switching to top-down to sell some of its new products. It's difficult, uh, to say the least, if only because, like an example like Cloudflare, they disrupted the giant of Akamai in what it did, which is DDoS protection, application services, CDN in its core platform. It disrupted by going bottom up instead of top down. And so, uh, you know, now that it's selling SASE services, it can sell that directly at the CIO, CISO level in order for an entire enterprise to adopt this next-gen networking security solution. And so it has to adapt to that uh, kind of change in the level that it sells to. And so it has to shift from, not from one to the other, it's not shifting from bottom up to top down, it's adding both in that particular case. And exact same with Okta. Okta sold itself as an enterprise-wide solution that you would adopt to track your workforce and identities across your employees, partners, vendors, whoever needed to access your systems. Um, they sold, there's two components to that platform, their workforce tracking and their consumer tracking, which means uh, you're going to embed Okta within your own application stack to track the users within your application. So Adobe is a is a popular one they like to call out. Everything in Adobe Cloud is tracked through Okta. That's the consumer side of Okta. 
when they acquired Auth0, it was almost an admission that, oh, wait, that consumer user tracking embedding within the application itself is something that the DevOps team normally picks, not the top of the cha chain at the CIO, CISO level, CTO level, whoever in the C-suite is making those decisions. And so uh, when they purchased Auth0, at first it seemed like an admission that maybe we should sell this bottom up, but they got very confused, kept both around and were selling both at the same time, meaning to me, they were having two competing elements within their company, two competing segments that were going out to the same deals and trying to sell them. It was really odd scenario. And ultimately they admitted that they really fumbled that acquisition and I think are starting to improve things. We'll see. But um, that was one where they, I feel like put blinders on and didn't really adapt well or didn't really recognize that, hey, these are two very drastically different go-to-market motions. And so it's been interesting to watch the fumbles and stumbles of some of these public companies as they try to do it. I think Cloudflare has been a lot more successful in selling its into the enterprise level and putting an enterprise team together. And so, yeah, it, it's been interesting, especially in, in data, in security. When you have point solutions, it's the developers that are making the decision about what database we're going to embed? What is the streaming platform we're going to embed? Are we going to go with AWS or, or Confluent for a streaming platform, for instance? Are we going with Redshift versus Snowflake? That's typically you know, head of engineering level, but bottom up. It's the developers who are using that tool, deciding to use it. Now with CIOs, as the CIO role, that's really what they're therefore is to determine what's the best platform for us to adopt enterprise-wide. And so you have a lot of these decisions, especially as a company like, let's say, CrowdStrike is moving beyond just endpoint protection to become a fuller security platform. That needs to be sold you know, top-down. Luckily, they're already one that focused on top-down uh, kind of from the start. So it's been interesting watching these go-to-market motion shifts and not everyone's been successful because I think of the difficulty in doing so. It is. And it's something I think we, we should be aware of as investors. You know, as we see this, and you know, you see the investor presentations about how much the addressable market's going to grow because we used to sell to this just, you know, elite group at the top of the pyramid. But look at how many more, you know, op opportunities there are at the bottom of the pyramid. That that is not easy, you know. You you've seen uh companies like Okta, FireEyes, another one that comes immediately to mind of you know, you've got the the highest margins, the highest uh, uh, top of the you know top of the food chain, if you will, highest paying customers, and it's it's very hard to pivot from that. But it's certainly also harder to pivot from smaller engineering teams to something that would be embraced across an enterprise. I'd, I'd it, even it's add not undoable, but it's certainly hard. Yeah, I'd even add a different pivot. Certainly, we talked about go to market shifting between bottom up and top down, but you also have uh, you know kind of maturity of market going on with some of these companies right now you have CrowdStrike and Zscaler that have been sold to large enterprise and are starting to move down that kind of customer segment into just kind of other enterprise um, sizes. And they've all got their different cohort sizing charts for what they want to name these things, but they're moving from, you know, global 2000 to the rest of 
you know, global enterprises and, and then smaller into SMB. And then you've got a company like Sentinel One that really focused on Sentinel uh, SMB and is starting to move up market. So you've got that as an extra motion on top of these things. And so it's it's been been fun to watch all that play out. Let's chat about that one. That's another topic I'd love to chat about is, is CrowdStrike versus Sentinel One, right? Both in endpoint detection, XDR embraced by both of them. I think most people are perhaps quick to call CrowdStrike, you know, the lumbering dinosaur and then Sentinel One, the new nimble innovator that's looking to steal share. But uh, we did just see CrowdStrike uh, woo two of Sentinel One's uh, executives, mm. both their chief marketing officer, Daniel Bernard, and then their chief product officer, Raj Rajamani. Uh, leaving Sentinel One for CrowdStrike. Uh, do you make anything of that move? Uh, you know, we know that there's people moving from uh, company to company a lot in the IT world, but is this a big deal? Probably. Um, I haven't fully processed that, that change yet, but it, yes, <laughs> it is a big deal when you steal two C-suite employees uh, actively from your one of your competitors elbowing you for for your clientele in, in a couple of different fronts. And so, yes, it's been interesting to watch Sentinel One and, and CrowdStrike for sure. So, I, I don't know about the lumbering dinosaur. I'd say <laughs> CrowdStrike had a lot of success and is still though, top yeah. of the leaderboard in selling its solution for endpoint protection. And then is expanding into SecOps and IT ops, uh, uh, other capabilities, cloud security, um, and identity protection in particular are, are pretty exciting new directions for it. Um, so it's really starting to become the, the, the Cadillac of, of security platforms. It's trying to provide all of these extras so you can just go with them. And so, you know, Sentinel One is obviously earlier in its S curve. It's been, although it's not altogether maybe there's like a year, year and a half between when they were truly founded and, and launched. So there's not that much, or, or they're both, you know, many years old at this point. But uh, Sentinel One's claim is to autonomy. So, you know, CrowdStrike requires a SOC team, a security operations center in order to run it. And Sentinel One's claim is that it's an autonomous solution that can find and remediate things for you and you can supposedly use less uh, uh, security personnel in order to run it um but yeah it's that dynamic that's at play sentinel one got successful because it was going after the smbs that crowdstrike wasn't going after and that was its entry into this and now is moving up market and absolutely is moving up market with some large lands and so it's been interesting to watch that from a security front because of the how prevalent it is in the press in terms of breaches. It's, it's an everyday occurrence with ransomware that you have to have solutions. And, and this has moved up to a board level decision to be proactive with security, even though it's not a contributor to growth and revenue. It's an expense that just kind of becomes a black hole and you can continue to spend in it. So you need to limit how much you spend in it, but it's become a board level decision to do so for risk management purposes. And so it's gotten a lot of attention. I think there's still a lot of success here for these platforms, but it that poaching of employees is, is pretty potent to get them to 
switch much less. There, there's other employees that have left for their own personal reasons of late. And so there's been a pretty huge management shuffle on the Sentinel One side. Uh, Muji, from a technical perspective, you know, I know you've been a data architect, architect for decades now. If you've got chief technology officer, chief information security officer coming up to you and saying, hey, we need you to pick one or the other for endpoint security, would you recommend CrowdStrike or Sentinel One? Uh, I haven't done in a product evaluation. I, 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 I do the overview of platforms. And so I don't have a particular uh, recommendation of which one I would prefer. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think they both get the job done enough. They both are scoring, you know, 95% plus on, on all the discoveries. You know, I think Sentinel one does have slightly better test scores, but but that's that's only part of the evaluation. And, and then kind of a, the, the last segment I want to talk about was just kind of some companies that you generally follow. I'm not sure that I have specific questions about them, but I would like to maybe we call this a lightning round where I just spot you up with a few and you can share some thoughts about, you know, whether you really like them, whether they're still a best in class solution in the areas that they play in or any other direction you want to take this. But First one is Datadog. You, you've followed you followed Datadog for several years. Where do we stand with Datadog right now? Um, it, Datadog is the what to watch in the market for Datadog is how the clouds are doing, and they're starting to slow a bit. And so, you know, it wouldn't be unusual for Datadog to start to slow a little bit because of it. Um, it's been interesting because how tied it is to cloud consumption, and so. You know, observability over that infrastructure that you're creating is kind of a per host charge. Really, let's call it um, not exactly usage-based, but it's capacity-based charging, I guess I'd say. And so as companies, we saw it with COVID. At the start of COVID, all of these companies pulled the levers within their cloud to make requests take a little bit longer. Your The queues stored a little bit longer. Uh, we turned off some of our load balancing so that things were processed slower in applications. Those are the levers that you can pull in modern cloud architectures that got pulled, which meant fewer containers, fewer serverless functions called, um, uh, smaller cluster sizes. And so that led to a few weak quarters for Datadog. But we were talking about all the, uh, and, th and then it rebounded when everything kind of opened up with the market afterwards. And so we could see that same kind of dynamic here in recessionary spending, companies all pulling those levers roughly in the same time period, last six months, let's say, of trying to reduce their cloud spend, especially on the retail and consumer side of cloud services. But what I like about Datadog is that they're really expanding other ways to, uh, to bill. And so their pricing is not just per host based. It's there is some usage based pricing. There's some per user based pricing depending on the product. And so they've really are starting to spread their their pricing um, in different ways across their platform. And so when companies started to pull back spend with recessionary concerns, they saw it on the usage-based pricing, which meant the amount of logs being processed in their log management system, You know, you, where you're billed on the number of gigabytes per 
time period. And so, you know, that's firmly usage-based pricing. They saw impacts there, not necessarily in the host-based pricing. And so I think they're pretty resilient of a company in that they can handle whatever stage and level of spend companies want to commit with their cloud. And then once you're in the cloud, as you want to modernize your applications, you need a company like Datadog to instrument your application, your application stack to see where it is now as you make improvements where it is tomorrow. And so you need Datadog or a observability platform on both sides of that, much less the fact that they're cross-cloud, regardless of which cloud you pick, regardless of your on-prem or cloud, you're going to use a, a system like Datadog. They've got that kind of universality, I guess I'd say, of, of how they apply to any modern company. Every company has to have eyes on its own infrastructure, and especially in the cloud, that's more true because you can't, you don't actually own the hardware at all. So Datadog provi provides the eyes. I still really like them as a company. Okay. How about speaking of billing in other ways, especially if it's volume-based, how, how about bill.com, which I believe is now just called bill. We, they've dropped the .com part off of that. They have. They've left 1999 behind. <laughs> Time um, for a new millennium. Yeah. Uh, we were just talking about management change. They've gone under, undergone a little bit of a management change over the past year or so. They've replaced a lot of roles. And so I've got some slight caution there, much less their SMB focused platform for managing cash flows. So this is a company that helps companies with their AR and AP side of things, accounts receivable, accounts payable, and managing your ongoing cash flows and schedule of payments in and out. And that is vital, I'd say. I think we got a glimpse at the start of COVID, March through May of 2020, of how um, economic uncertainty can impact Bill. And so I don't have many fears that the, you know, certainly they're, they're going to have some churn in any kind of recessionary environment where SMBs are coming and going. But it's such a vital tool for the ones that are using it that I don't, I don't think we're going to um, have churn. Uh, and they're going some interesting directions with their Divi acquisition, invoice to go. They're moving into where Ramp is uh, right now, as Ramp is moving towards them, which is a, a startup that is a competitor. And so that's um, you know kind of one thing to watch. I'd say is that I don't necessarily see a lot of innovation happening at bill.com, but they are providing some uh, a lot of solutions for international payment handling, um, faster ways to get vendors their money. And so it seems to be excelling at, at what it's doing. It's a good one to think about right now, especially as we're seeing a lot of valuation multiples contracting in the tech space companies that were previously selling at 25 or 30 times sales now selling for less than 10 times sales. But yeah. it's also very hard to displace some of those mission critical platforms certainly seems like Bill is, is one of those you're going to keep around whether the economy is good or the economy is bad. Yeah, Bill had some euphoria there for a while. It was at the top of clouded judgments um, valuation lists for, for cloud stocks for uh, a number of months last year and didn't it, it, the way its growth was impacted was a little bit hidden 
you had to to look kind of between the lines a little bit to realize that it was its float revenue was disappearing, but being replaced by the explosion of its transactional revenue as it handles payments through its cloud. And now with the, uh, the, the Fed rate being increased, that float revenue is actually coming back. Mm -hmm. So it's got some resilience, I feel like. It is so interesting though, right? I mean, like you, if you go back a couple of years, you remember Bill Gurley, you know, one of the venture capital, the most famous venture capitalists in America, you know, not one to be a stickler about valuations, thinking it was crazy. The companies were selling for 10 times sales, you know, and then you go a couple of years later, you know, you got interest rates low, you've got, you know, step on the accelerator growth and companies like Zoom are selling for 45 times sales uh, with the stability of those future cash flows kind of baked into this subscription model. But we're kind of retrenched. I think we're, we're back to a lot of these names that are best in class. Uh, I don't know if we can call them bargains or, or deep bargains right now, but certainly selling for a much more attractive valuation than they were two or three years ago. Thoughts on valuation in the markets right now, Muji, especially in the NASDAQ, the tech companies? Is it still, are, are we at reasonable uh, valuations for long-term investors? Uh, I, I think so, personally, uh, with the way I invest. Um, it's, you know, valuation certainly not my strong suit. And it, for me, it's more about finding the quality company, which tend to be the ones that are in the top 10 clouded judgment from Jam and Ball, uh, his blog that tracks um, SaaS valuations, uh, tends to be in the top 10 are, are the names that I tend to cover because they are the highest quality companies, most resilient. Uh, their platforms are going into exciting directions from here that I think keeps the growth continuing. And so, uh, you know, that's what I focus on is how well the companies are performing. Perfect. And, and one last thing. Yeah, the value is now much, or I guess those companies are a lot cheaper than they used to be through a, you know, hindsight bias, but it's, um, but I think they continue to have the most potential going forward. And one more, as we close this out, you know, we're talking about best in class companies. Maybe let's go with the alphabetically, probably the last company on most people's lists is a Zscaler, certainly a high quality company in cybersecurity that you're a fan of too. It is. Yeah. So Zscaler is providing basically security platform over user access, whether that's user accessing SaaS applications like Office 365 or Salesforce or internal applications, which is uh, two sides of their coin is protecting external SaaS apps and internal SaaS apps. Together, those are called SSE using Gartner's methodology, which is uh, secure security edge. Secure, yes. Secure security edge? No. I'm missing Sounds something. Sounds good to me there. either way. Yep. <laughs> uh, but what most call uh, secure web gateway and zero trust put together in one platform. And so this is all about protecting user access to applications that an enterprise sanctions them to use. And they are, they really pioneered both of those directions in one platform and are still continuing to have a lot of success. Um, you know, they may, certainly their user seat based pricing. And so there, there may be some slight headwinds in that. Overall, I think companies realize you cannot maintain that hub and spoke model of security. You cannot 
or uh, uh, let's call it castle and moat. You, you can't draw a moat uh, around your enterprise network anymore of a firewall protection layer. That doesn't exist anymore. You've got what's called the software defined perimeter, and you have to use tools like Zscaler in order to protect your users from the uh, malicious websites that exist out there, um, malware, and uh, breach attempts. And what I like about Zscaler is that they uh, partner very heavily with endpoint protection platforms like CrowdStrike, like Sentinel One in order to have kind of a harmony between not only this user who can access this application, but you can then tie the security to the, a particular device and improve the risk posture overall by using these tools in tandem. So still uh, pretty bullish on Zscaler. Absolutely. Like well, well, as I think always, there's a lot of runway for the next few years as companies start adopting this next gen security zone. Love it. Love it. Next gen security Z scaler, a good pick there. Uh, as always, probably one of the most insightful hours of the year. It's always a pleasure chatting with you, Muji. Thanks for joining us on the Seven Investing Podcast here today. It's, it's dense with that lightning round. We just got to <laughs> hop all around, but that, that was a fun journey. Thanks, Simon. I certainly always enjoy chatting with you. Uh, like we said and promised at the beginning, we're gonna we're gonna hop all over the round, all over the place for the lightning round. Uh, mm -hmm. Muji, just such such a great um, perspective on everything that's going on in, in innovation in the tech world. You can follow along with him at hypergrowth.com. That's three H's hypergrowth.com, and he is hypergrowth on Twitter if you want to follow his analysis there. Uh, so that's a wrap of today's episode of our 7investing podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. We'll have it available on 7investing.com slash podcast, or you can subscribe to get these delivered directly to your inbox at 7investing.com slash email. My name is Simon Erickson. We appreciate you tuning in.